0: Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. Hey, everyone. I'm Richard Gunther from the Digital Media Zone. Welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-host Adam Justice from ConnectSense. Hey, Adam. Hey. Good to be back. It is. It's been since CES. And on today's show, we're joined by Josh Clark from Big Medium. Now, why and who is he? Well, we're going to talk about smart home product life cycles and specifically expiring products. fortunate enough to have Josh with us. Josh is an interaction designer, and I think of him kind of as the voice of expertise in this space. Anyone who is in experience design or interaction design is probably familiar with Josh. And Josh, welcome. I'm so
1: glad you're here with us today. Well, thank you. What a lovely intro. I'm I'm delighted to be here.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, I always like to start the show off before we dive in, Adam and I kind of have this thing going where we ask each other crazy questions. And uh, and be prepared, we might ask you this one too. But my question for Adam is, we've talked in the past about where you went to school and what you got your degree in. But uh, assuming that you learned some programming there, what was your first programming language? And if you had to, could you dive back in and code in it today?
2: Yeah. So I would say probably my first real formal programming language was HTML, but I wouldn't really count that because my first hey now formal. <laughs> well, I would not from a complexity standpoint, but from a, I learned that on my own. It wasn't really like institutional knowledge the real formal one that I learned institutionally in college was Java. So I had a degree in informatics and the requirement there was to do two years of Java. So I remember in, in school, the textbook for this was this giant thick heavy textbook called big Java. So we had to carry this thing around and break our backs with that. And the thing about, I don't know if it was just Java or what, but, I did not care for programming, uh, despite being, I guess, fairly talented in it. I got all A's in programming. I even remember a time in the Java one hundred and one where we had to do this weird exercise or test on paper, and the professor, you know, said something to me of like, "Oh, it was really interesting how you solved this problem, and you know, you really have a knack for this, or whatever." So, but I just did not care for it. I was really good at it, really, you know. Never struggled with any of that kind of element of school, but when I was looking for careers afterwards, that was not an area I was looking to go into. So, <laughs> in terms of being able to dive back into it today, I feel like, you know, the key thing of learning programming is less about the language and more about understanding the principles and how. You're supposed to kind of think and work in in kind of programming logic. So Mm -hmm. I think some of those core things probably stuck around. I don't know that I'd want to dive back into Java. If I were to dive into anything today, I would probably go with Swift, which is iOS's programming language, also object oriented. and, And I think it's been designed to be taught and things like that. So I've played around a little bit with that, just with my kids and some of the kind of Fun tools that Apple has for that, but uh, yeah, I don't think there's any major Java in my future.
0: Or it sounds like any love lost over it.
2: No, none. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How about you, Josh? Did you ever learn a programming language?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I love actually, Adam, your reference to the the exercise on paper because it, it reminds me a little bit of. In the eighties, you know, well before the internet, they had the computing magazines where they would have programs printed in the, in the magazines, uh, that you would have to sort of like type, you know, Mm -hmm. manually into your own, into your own machine. Right. And I, I found recently, I had totally forgotten that I did this when I was like maybe in middle school. So like early eighties, a letter that I'd written to, I think Byte magazine submitting a floppy disk with my, Program written in Basic that I I thought that they should print, and it said, "If you don't want to use it, please return the floppy disk and the (laughs) the self self addressed stamp envelope." Because you know the worst thing would be to lose the floppy disk. So I don't know. So I I I did some basic programming as a kid would have been my first, and I don't know if I would be able to come back around to it. Sort of the the, or at least it would take a little bit of of time to sort of get used to this very kind of linear style of right. Basic programming. 10, print hello world, 20, go to 10.
0: Well, and and you just answered my question for me because basic was my first language. Although, I don't know, Adam, you kind of upped the game here. I was self-taught on basic, so maybe that doesn't count. (laughs) But but I, I ended up teaching myself to code in basic by... Riding my bike down to the local radio shack and sitting in front of their TRS 80 and just playing with it and following along in the book exercises and stuff like that. And then when I was in school, in college, I think Fortran was probably the first language that I learned officially. And yeah, there's no way I could remember any of that. And that's probably a good thing because. Even though Cobol still out there Fortran fortunately is long gone
1: as is the TRS-80 I guess but it, then you could oh, save yeah. <laughs> your your programs on the on the audio cassette right you didn't have to have the floppy disk That's disc. right
0: That's right well the floppy disks I mean you know that was advanced technology that didn't even exist at the time That was that, that was exactly right the audio tape that's funny
2: Oh, man. I at least remember floppy disks. I feel like, uh, you know, the younger generation has that problem now where that's a save icon. They don't really know what it is other than that. And that save icon doesn't make any sense to them from a contextual (laughs) standpoint. But do you remember actual
0: floppy? Oh, yeah. Floppy disks. Oh, yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. We always had PCs around, even when I was real little, uh, my dad being in the space, so... I remember actual floppy, floppy, you know, five and a quarter. And I've even seen larger ones than that.
0: Yep. All right. Good stuff. Well, these questions are always fun. And if you have a question that you want us to answer, you can submit the question to hashtag AskAdamAndRichard on Twitter. Any account, just use that hashtag. We'll catch it. All right. Well, Josh, let's take a moment to introduce you and kind of give some an explanation if you will as to why you're here today. I invited you to join us after you were tweeting some concerns and some interesting examples after the news from Sonos that they were deprecating some of their devices. And it got me thinking a lot about that overall experience that consumers are going through now where smart devices obviously have a half-life, but most consumers, I say obviously, most consumers probably aren't thinking about that. And and probably manufacturers aren't thinking enough about that as well. So that's kind of the genesis of today's discussion. And maybe if you could, Josh, if you could give us just like two or three minutes of background on on you and the work that you do at
1: Big Medium. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, well, I, I run a design agency called Big Medium that's based in in Brooklyn, New York. And we really focus on design for what's next. And The way that I try to think about that is how do we help our client companies to create products that take advantage of emerging technologies, not necessarily like the really highly experimental stuff, but things that have settled enough to be reliable to actually sort of put out there, but also to do it in ways that are are meaningful, not just, you know, can we do it, but should we? How does this Bend, how does the technology bend to the, the lives of, of its users rather than the reverse, which is sort of so often the case. Mm -hmm. So meaningful uses, but also respectful uses. And I think that gets to, to some of the things that we're doing here where sometimes as technologists, we run into things kind of headlong of, of, with our enthusiasm for the new. Hustling things out in ways that don't necessarily anticipate some of the the problems or confusions or even sort of change in mental model that a lot of customers will have once we start to integrate a new technology into an experience. And I think sort of what we're seeing now where hardware becoming smart is, you know, as you alluded to, more than just hardware getting a new feature. You know, it's actually changing the nature of it. It's changing the hardware to some degree into software, and it has all of the limitations of software as well as its advantages. And it's something that I think we as customers haven't really absorbed yet of what that means for us when we're when we're buying kind of an everyday advice that now happens to be connected.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you'll have some interesting perspectives on this as we go through. Let's backtrack a little bit. Let's kind of start out with a discussion about this concept of a product half-life or products expiring over time. And really, this conversation started as a result of the Sonos thing, and let's not assume that everybody knows what the Sonos thing is. So, first off, before Christmas, I think it was around November, Sonos put out a notice that they were starting a trade-up program. And for the most part, this was initially well-received because people thought, oh, this is kind of cool. I can trade in my old device and get 30% off some new device. Now, I might argue that the writing was on the wall the minute they announced this program that they were intending on getting people off of old devices. That was really the impetus for doing that. And we can return to that, whether that was the case or not. But what ended up happening here is that initially this was well-received. People started taking advantage of it. And then they realized that when they did this, it actually ended up bricking their old device because the idea was you're going to have 30% off of a new device. As soon as you take advantage of that 30% discount, as soon as you buy something on their site with that discount, then you had to put your device into basically a countdown mode where within three weeks it was going to die like dead, dead can't be used for anything. And you we're responsible for taking it to a recycling center. So this is intentionally killing a smart wired device for a benefit for you and potentially you're getting you know you're you're getting some good value out of that trade in. Now you could also have just sold it Right, You could just sell it on eBay and probably get better than 30% even on some of these devices. Like the old Play 5 is still a really good device. You could probably sell that for like 200 bucks and get some good
2: money for it. Or at least you could have at the time. Maybe once some of this other stuff.
0: <laughs> right, right, exactly. So that's a really good point. So that takes us to our next announcement from Sonos where they let people know that they were going to re- retire old devices. And specifically, they pointed out a couple, like the Connect, the Connect amp, and the first-gen Play 5 device. The, the, in, in fact, I have one sitting... Actually, the one in this room is not first-gen, but I have one in the house. And so, not surprisingly everybody just went crazy. What? You're going to stop supporting them? Oh my God, you're killing my devices. No, they're not killing your devices. What they're doing is they're going to stop putting out feature enhancements for these old products. Now, this could have been communicated much, much better. They did not do a good job of communicating this. They tried, but they didn't do a good job. And they Clearly didn't expect the backlash that they got. And then the press took it, and they just fanned the flames. So now we have everybody all stressed out and headlines that say Sonos is bricking your Play 5 and stuff like that. And it's not really true. It's not that bad. So the CEO comes out with a letter clarifying a little bit. But he doesn't really say anything new. He's just saying that your devices are still going to work. We're going to try and keep them alive as long as we can. We have a pretty good record with that. In the meantime, if we have to come up with some new feature that can't be pushed out to your old device, we're going to come up with a way of letting you use your old device from that point on as a part of a separate system. Now, I don't, quite know what that means. I think it means that you might have two Sonos networks in your home, one with old devices, one with new devices. That's less than ideal, but it's better than dead. It's better than it doesn't work with my old devices anymore. I don't really know why they're taking that approach. It could be AirPlay 2 related or something else. But I mean, if if I look back at old devices that Sonos has been putting out, my friend Chris Milligan, who has been on my other show and was with me at CES, he has the old controller, the CR200, that came out in 2009, and it still works. Like, they don't put out feature updates for it. In fact, they've had to turn features off because they're not available anymore. What this old controller device still works. So I feel like this is a company that has a pretty good track record of trying to do right by their customers. And that'll probably be the end of my sounding like a Sonos fanboy. But I, 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 I do think that this is a, a touchy subject for a lot of people, because if you're buying speakers, you're spending a lot of money on these things. You know, we're not talking about a fifty dollars switch. We're talking about a five hundred dollars device.
2: Yeah, I can understand where people are upset. Especially, I've never been an all-in on Sonos guy. I, I flirted with it a little bit, and then the devices ended up at at our office, where they still get used today. But. You know, I know the people like yourself, Richard, and and others who are all in on it, and then they make a heavy investment, putting a lot of these throughout their home. So, I think that's a lot of where this is coming from: is people that were early supporters of Sonos and said, "I love this, and I want," you know, ten of these in my house, or maybe not that significant, but. You know, if you spend, you know, 500000 you know, a couple thousand dollars on these devices and pepper them throughout your home, you're not going to be happy to hear that, you know, it it may not have full support going forward.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I'm somebody who, who's kind of gone all in on, on Sonos. And so th- this, I was sort of one of the people who this was... This gave me pause. I don't have the old ones that are, that are actually going to be bricked, but it sort of lit me up to sort of say, oh, wait a second, this this is eventually going to happen. Um, like you, Richard, I, I've had a great experience as a listener to my Sonos speakers, and it's like a <laughs> really impressive engineering company. The thing that really gave me pause here was that they were sort of like, oh, in three months, we're going to stop. Sort of pushing updates mm-hmm. to this, which seemed like a short amount of time span. But it was also sort of like, oh, this is like, these devices are eight or nine years old. And on the one hand, that's ancient in technology terms. Uh, and you know, you mentioned, um, Chris with his CR200 controller and how remarkable it is it still works 11 years later. <laughs> you know, on the other hand, I've got these speakers from the seventies that sound as great as they did 50 years ago. And I've got a turntable that still works, you know, it, it you know, the 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 needle and vinyl
0: right. you know, it's still
1: it's still working
0: yep and you can still buy needle cartridges for those and they all it all works just fine
1: right so the technology is still current in a sense the the thing i suppose that is changing is one is sort of the expectation of longevity is different than it was in the last century But I think also there's just this, this idea that's a little unsettling that the thing that we buy may have different features at the time that we buy it than at the time it goes out of service. And sometimes that'll be, Mm -hmm. in many cases, that'll be more features. That's sort of the new bit. Right. Uh, but you know, in other cases, they may be deprecated or it may sort of gradually start losing its effectiveness. And it's a strange thing not to be in control or feel full ownership of this device that you buy. So I think, you know, uh, Adam, you mentioned sort of the cost of it, but I think there's also sort of a sense of agency. Like I I don't get to choose whether I have two networks or one, I don't get to choose which features I have, or maybe I can, but how, how much effort is that going to take? How much of a network administrator am I going to have to be just to listen to music?
2: Yeah. I think, (laughs) I think you raise a good point, Josh. and, And to kind of go off of that, I think what's interesting about this, we'll, we'll use your record player as a, as an example and, and speakers from the seventies. Those products, what you got at the store that day was the product that you got and it never changed even to today. And that's a great thing about it. Yep. One of the advantages we're having with connected devices, and something that everybody loves about connected devices, is that the product you buy on day one, the Sonos these people bought nine years ago, was something. And because it's connected, it can continue to evolve. So that product they bought, you know, whatever, many years ago, gets better and better over time. Everybody loves that part of this equation. They love the product's... You know, I think for me, probably my first product that was like that was TiVo. And I love the fact that TiVo got better and better over time. New software, new features, things like that. Mm -hmm. But if the business model doesn't support, you know, TiVo at least had like a subscription cost that kind of supported some of that. If if it's just a one-time product cost, then, you know, sometimes those equations don't work over time where they're continued to be support costs to that device that, you know, no longer makes sense. I think the other piece of this too, is that sometimes a company has to burn bridges to move forward. And it's hard as a user for those devices, that company to understand that when you're in it. And the best example I can think of for this was Netflix. I was somebody that was totally pissed you know, angry when they made the cut between getting DVDs in the mail and the, you know, streaming service. Well, time has shown that was clearly the right thing to do (laughs) and who could care about getting DVDs in the mail now, but it was hard. So the point being, it was hard for me to see that as a user at that time. Yeah. So I think this is one of those things where, some distance from this particular thing with Sonos might give us that perspective of oh this is why they wanted to do this oh this is where they were headed and those old devices were really holding us back from getting there right so I, it's hard as a company to be able to fully project that cuz you don't necessarily want to give forward looking statements and you know promises that you can't necessarily fulfill today but from a company perspective i think sometimes that's why these kinds of decisions are made and it's it's hard to it's hard to understand that but i think if we did a follow up episode on this in 3 years we might have a different perspective than we do today
0: i think you're exactly right and you know this is a good transition into some discussion about what causes this to happen like why is it that companies have to kind of either give up on a device or intentionally retire it or or maybe not intentionally. Maybe it happens for other reasons. And I outlined a couple that I think are worthwhile to go over so the consumers can understand that there's some reasoning here. One of the reasons, and I think this is something that is very applicable to the Sona situation, is that oftentimes old hardware just can't support or it's entirely incompatible with new features or new hardware that the company might be bringing to market. We know for a fact that this is true with AirPlay 2 and older devices from Sonos, that older devices cannot support AirPlay 2 and can only really be included in AirPlay 2 casting if they're grouped with newer devices. And even that's a little bit wonky. So I completely buy. I don't think that this is an excuse where they're saying, oh, well, the old hardware isn't going to be able to support new stuff. And the example that I'll give here, kind of backtracking a little bit in my notes, is yeah, you can still run Windows XP if you really want to, but you're kind of taking your life in your own hands and you're not going to be running the latest version of Photoshop on it.
2: Right. I think from a hardware perspective the thing to be mindful of is you know the the microprocessors and components that we had you know 5 6 years ago were only capable of so much and in today's day and age things move so quickly that you know being able to support complex software on a piece of hardware you know, you can only squeeze so much juice out of, out of one orange and, and then eventually it, it just ain't going to work anymore. So I can understand that from a hardware perspective where, where you would get to a, a line in the sand like this. Yeah. I think one of the
1: interesting things there is that you're right that we have that expectation around certain devices, right? Our computers and our phones. We've kind of accepted that. But it's sort of not equally distributed to other things where it's like, wait a second, my vacuum cleaner or my refrigerator or my speakers or or I don't know, my car. I mean, you know, Teslas are kind of remarkable. You get an upgrade, you get, you know, an upgrade to your car every month, effectively. What happens when those stop or what's the experience of that? And, you know, I think that there's just sort of this literacy, I think, that has been a little slow in coming of, oh, wait a second, this isn't just a vacuum cleaner or just a car anymore. It's something different that has new strengths, but also new limitations yeah. and business models often that are no longer actually about longevity, but are about upgrades and replacement, or in the case of phones, even generating that upgrade opportunity as an event and a celebration, time to get your new phone. <laughs> like that's a, a real shift in the way that we think about hardware that we've accepted in certain areas, but but not in others. And, and I think that the companies who are leading the charge in these new devices have some responsibility to. Increase that literacy in ways that don't feel like kind of crisis moments, like Sonos created.
0: I yeah, I, I agree completely. And you know, you touched on a couple of things there, Josh. That that we're we're dependent on things that the consumers don't necessarily think about, right? If you have a certain chip in a device, or a certain radio, or maybe you foolishly bought a refrigerator that has a twenty nine inch screen on the front of it, and these are components that are not going to age well in comparison to the devices that they might be in, in terms of longevity. Similarly, you could have off-site dependencies. You could have a dependency on some cloud service that your device needs to be able to communicate or function properly. And if those services don't get maintained, meaning The company decides, oh, yep, we're not going to be keeping these up to date anymore. That could be a problem. You mentioned phones. I love your analogy of phones because you're right. We have turned this kind of replacement purchasing into a big thing that we get all excited about in the case of phones. In In the case of phones, Apple's done stuff where, for example, with iOS 11, if you were a software developer and you had an app out there, chances are it could probably live on for years and years and years without getting updated. I might argue that if you're a software developer and that's how you release software, you should probably be in a different field. But the point is that if there was orphaned software out in the store and it didn't get upgraded to support the new hardware architecture of phones that were running iOS 11, those apps simply weren't going to work anymore. What if you needed that app? I don't know, to run your coffee maker.
2: Yep. You're out of luck.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so there, there are a lot of reasons that this could be, but, oh, man, you know, this idea of forced obsolescence or encouraged obsolescence. You're absolutely right, Josh. In some cases, this is their designed business model to get you to buy a new one every couple of years.
1: It's a, it's a little like that uh, big marketing breakthrough from the 50s of, you know, putting on shampoo bottles, lather, rinse, repeat, you know, by adding that single word repeat, <laughs> you double sales, right? So there's an expectation now, I think, being built around upgrades uh, as a business model. Um, and also, you know, through technical necessities, we're talking about if you really do want to have this advancement, but it gets cooked into the business, right? Sort of a, and part of the business plan, where it's not necessarily clear that that's really the best for customers, or or certainly for the environment. And um, Adam, I you know, one of the things you mentioned is is that one of the great new things about this class of devices is that y- you are constantly getting an upgrade. My turntable hasn't changed, but my Sonos has. Uh, I think that there's an interesting question, though. Of sort, of, still sort of, but you know, how how might we use those superpowers to design smart devices? for longevity. You know, that the idea that it's like, well, how can we sort of think about this, that we do get those advances, not just so the thing, thing is better, but that we don't have to replace it. And I think that right now, you know, I think we're still as an industry trying to figure out how we can do that with some of the, you know, like you were saying, technical limitations that old hardware inevitably run into. But it feels like an opportunity uh, to sort of say, you know, actually, if we can upgrade the device and just put new brains in it, Shouldn't there be some opportunity that we could extend longevity instead of shorten it? And it's an interesting question that I'm not sure we have an answer to right now.
0: Yeah, I, I want to explore that a little bit more when we get into our segment to talk about how to to handle this both from the consumer and the manufacturer side. Because I think there are some opportunities there, but there's always cost involved with that, right? And and so you need to think about that earlier. The earlier that you think about that, like if you're thinking about that from the beginning then maybe it will be less costly to do that later down the line. But that's that's definitely worth exploring. Before we go there, I do want to kind of just bring up some other examples because this isn't all just put on Sonos's shoulders. You know, And Gadget had an article where they basically, they went to the dark place right away and their headline says, every smart device you love will die, starting with Sonos. And this is kind of predicated on the idea that we've seen numerous cases of this happening. And Sonus is just kind of the latest in the field of dead devices left in the wake. And so I kind of categorize these into three different groupings in terms of, okay, well, what's the root cause? And oftentimes the root cause is that company just went away. Like this was an ambitious idea. Company maybe wasn't A viable company in and of itself. Maybe this was their first product. Maybe they just ended up getting out of it. Maybe they were acquired and this is no longer their business approach. And some examples of that, there was a company called Halo Smart Labs put out really good connected smoke detector. They're gone. Smoke detector, it'll, it'll make noise, but it's not going to do any of the connected stuff. So they kind of, handled that situation gracefully. The Leo Smart Alert was a detector sensor. It listened for different noises that you might have in your house. So if you have a smoke detector or if you have other things that might have siren-like noises, it could alert you based on what it was hearing, the audio signature of that. Their services went dead and so their products went dead.
2: Those things just aren't working anymore. I think I have one of those still in the box, so you know, <laughs> souvenir for somebody.
0: It'd be interesting to plug it in and see what happens. It'll probably make a good light night nightlight. Now there you go. Although not even because, if I remember correct, I think the default color was blue. So there are other systems like whole home control systems that have gone away. Uh, Revolve people may remember that that was a startup a company that had this idea of. Creating a hub to control all the smart things in your home, Nest bought them and quickly killed it. Those devices are dead. Now, the good news is that Nest has lots of money. So they reimbursed everybody for the money that they had spent on that device, which is kind of rare. Uh, Stack Lighting, company that made really, really good circadian rhythm lighting devices with all kinds of sensors in them, decided to get out of the consumer lighting business and focus instead on sensors and lighting for elder care facilities, which is a really good business and something where we want a smart company like that focusing, but consumer products, they're, you know, they're, they're walking dead right now. They still work, but someday those services probably aren't going to work anymore. Uh, there's one that you put in here, Josh, the, the Aether Cone. Is that the right pronunciation?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was a uh, this sort of fancy, beautiful speaker that talked to the RDO streaming service. So this was a double whammy of, of RDO going <laughs> under and the company not doing very well. So the audio service stopped working. And shortly after, the company pulled the plug. And so their servers that did some of the voice control and things like that stopped being supported too. So in that case, they sort of pushed a firmware update to turn the speaker into just a regular Bluetooth AirPlay speaker, which is probably about as good as they can do. It's like, hey, we can't support these services anymore. One of them doesn't even exist, but we can at least make it be just a sort of a regular speaker again. But it, effectively, it turned it into another kind of device. I think that's really smart. I, I love that. I might ask, why
0: isn't Sonos thinking of that, right? Like, why not think of that for the Play 5? The Play 5 has inputs. Why not rewire its circuitry with a firmware update that would simply let it act as an amplified speaker? I think that would be a
1: really useful thing. Well, it, it, this sort of comes to the, the thing that we had talked about a bit earlier, um, Richard op, Offline, is that Mitch Hedberg quote, the, the late, great stand-up comic, that an escalator can never break, can only become stairs. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so this idea, you should never see an escalator that's temporarily out of order sign. It should just say escalator is temporarily stairs." <laughs> uh, I think that that's, that's sort of the idea here. It, but I think it means understanding what the baseline product is, that you're not actually buying a smart speaker in this case you're buying a speaker that happens to connect to other services, but you're still the fundamental thing you're buying is a speaker. Right. But that's not a clear distinction for many.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Now, sometimes this happens because products just they, they have the the cord pulled. And uh, usually the company's made a business decision that, okay, this is this is not working. We we're gonna cut it. And that's a harsh reality for a lot of consumers. And sometimes they do right by the consumers and sometimes they don't. Staples Connect is a good example of that. Home Hub, brilliant solution, worked with all these different devices, got everything connected to each other. They they lost leadership uh, confidence in the project and ultimately it flailed and they killed it. And so all the consumers who had bought that device couldn't use it anymore. Now, the good thing is it connected a whole bunch of other devices that could be connected to other hubs. So that wasn't so bad. Connected by TCP. TCP is a well-known lighting manufacturer. They make most of the light bulbs in pretty much every hotel where you stay. And many, many businesses use TCP lighting. They came out with a connected product for consumers and pulled the plug on their services. But they actually handled it in a way where their light bulbs became light bulbs. You could just still use them as plain old light bulbs if you wanted to. Lowes Iris killed their smart home hub. They reimbursed people for some stuff. Best Buy killed their smart home products. I'm seeing a real trend in big box companies not doing a good job with smart home. Hmm, that could be a whole episode in and of itself. And meanwhile, there are still products out there. I mentioned stack lighting, which is kind of still working, even though there's nothing behind it. Wink Hub is kind of in the same situation. Like nobody knows if the Wink Hub is going to survive or not. And for how long will it be alive? We can't expect that it's going to get future updates at this point, unless we hear something from someone and nobody's talking. So this problem will continue to occur With devices going forward and what i want to look at after our break is kind of what we as consumers and we as product manufacturers adam can do like how can we think about this differently to maybe ease some of the impact that this has
2: yeah so uh, let's take a quick break for our sponsors and then we'll return with more smart home discussion All right. So, kind of as as Richard said before the break, we're going to discuss a little bit about how do we fix this? How do companies, you know, handle this better than than Sonos handled it? And also how do we as consumers I guess prepare ourselves for this in the future? What should our expectations be and things like that? So, I think, you know, from a consumer perspective first of all, We got to evaluate a little bit of our investments in technology. Sonos is not a small company, and nor are they a fly-by-night operation. So I think that's part of the reaction here is that people didn't expect this or, or necessarily see it coming. To some of what Richard said before, smaller, newer companies that are new to this space, you know, the Kickstarter guys, things like that. These these can be troublesome areas for for you know products that will end up on on our list we just went over in the future.
0: Okay, quick show of hands, who's been burnt on Kickstarter? <laughs> two, two out of three. No, yep,
1: for sure. Three out of yeah. three. Three out of three. Yeah,
2: for sure. Raising hands. Yeah, I mean i I've taken the approach now with Kickstarter of basically like, unless it's a well known company. If it's anything remotely technical, I won't even bother. And my philosophy on that kind of stuff now is if it's this exciting now, it'll be this exciting and supported when it actually releases. And maybe I won't get one on day one, but... I'm going to protect my investment by waiting until it's generally available and, and things like that. So I still have... Uh, That's smart. Yeah. My my burn on Kickstarter, still outstanding, was a exciting campaign of truly wireless earbuds, well-predating AirPods and all those kinds of things. <laughs> and I remember... Uh, reaching out to the company after seeing kind of where the space is going and asking for my money back. And they said, Nope. And they still every once in a while throw something to the wolves of, you know, Hey, we're still working on this. And I, I would uh, put good money that we'll never see those devices. will never see the light of day because technology has moved on and there are better things than what this dream was five years ago or whatever.
1: I remember when Kickstarter first started, it was more of sort of like a patron model. Like, that's a good idea. That's something that deserves to exist in the world. And it was often about like art projects or, you know, sort of things like that. It's like, here's some money. Go go make that thing with limited expectations of a return. And somewhere along the way, it became this catalog of the future of like, often by people with very little experience building their first product, which was sometimes fascinating, right? Getting those reports of like people going to China for the first time to sort of deal with the technology companies there and some of the the challenges of often what seemed like working with hardware for the first time. It's like, oh, wow, this is hard and bringing us on that journey, but also taking our money at the same time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm still waiting on... I mean, it was a great idea two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, an alarm clock that is going to have a digital assistant built into it. (laughs) <laughs> I, like i i literally just got pictures of the manufacturing line last week
1: really god bless them i hope they can do it <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's and it's a i mean i think it's interesting i think kickstarter gives consumers in a sense this like keyhole into just how hard it is to make these things well, the things that we sort of have become to treat for granted. And it's not a fun thing to kind of learn. It's like, Oh, this was too hard for you to actually pull off Kickstarter entrepreneur. But, uh, it, it really does show it's like, Oh yeah. You know, the old saying that hardware is hard is
2: that's a real thing. (laughs) Yes. I've got scars to prove it. Yeah. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, as a smaller player in the space, I wouldn't say you know totally shy away from smaller companies, but I think doing your homework and making sure you know what you're buying, you know where it's coming from, where the organization is, it, are these guys a startup, are they an established company, and as we're having this conversation, it, it kind of... Light bulbs in my head are like, oh, we should do a better job of telling the story that, you know, we're backed by a larger company and we've been around since 2003. And, you know, some of this kind of stuff that would totally help people be like, oh, these guys are legit and they're not going anywhere. I can buy this product and be confident in it. That's an interesting. Or do you,
1: or that you have a product, right? Instead of a, a pre sale, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting part of somebody like us that. You know, we need to probably start telling that story more for these types of reasons that people are mistrusting or unsure of those kinds of things. Yeah. And I think, you know, as consumers, just having an expectation for the devices we have, you know, I think part of this to what we're saying about a device getting better over time, I think I've generally told people you should expect the device you get on day one. I think this is kind of a trend that's gone on in our industry and and the press has also had a hard time with the people that make announcements of what a device is going to be in the future. And, and I always try to be careful about this with our stuff, too, is I don't want to overpromise things that you know we're planning on. Our intention is always to make things better, but people should buy things for what they are today and then be excited when new stuff comes down the line. So for consumers, I would say that's one of my pieces of advice is whatever you buy on day one, that should be your expectation. In terms of reasonable life expectation, I'm interested to hear what you guys think on on this subject.
0: Yeah, this is a hard one, particularly with connected products or or products that contain components. So Let's say we're talking about a small handheld something, a smart something that you're going to install or plug in or whatever. It probably costs less than $100 or something like that, or or maybe it costs a little bit more. Maybe it's a doorbell and you spent $200 on it. I mean, I certainly would never have believed 10 years ago that I would have replaced one smart doorbell that I spent $200 on with a newer version of that smart doorbell just four years later for another $200. I mean, that's just that we didn't think that way as consumers. So part of it is changing the way that you think about devices and what a reasonable life cycle is for different types of devices. It gets harder when you talk about durable goods. If I'm talking about, for example, a refrigerator or a car, I I really like the I use the refrigerator example all the time, and I'll give myself a shameless plug on that later. But if you buy a refrigerator that has a 29 inch Android screen on it, when's the last time you bought a refrigerator? My bet is that it's more than 15 years ago for whatever refrigerator preceded the one you have now and if you think that that android screen is going to last and be supported for 15 years you're delusional <laughs> no company is going to do that
1: yeah i think you're you're right it's like there's there's those hardware considerations of sort of hardware that we're not familiar with being kind of glommed into something that we do know and and then a mismatch of of that life and then there's also just sort of the software stuff that we were talking about before if at some point the software may outpace the the old the aging hardware that you've got I think that is just sort of a new reality that we're going to have appliances or devices that we're accustomed to being dumb and having a certain lifespan, having a different one now. And I think that even the manufacturers aren't exactly sure what that lifespan will be. I suspect that they have a better idea than most consumers though. And And I think that sort of, if the more that companies can do their best to sort of establish some minimum expectations around that, particularly around things of like, if you have a, a notion of what your roadmap looks like for end of life or going to support only for firmware updates or software updates. That's an expectation that you can begin to set in advance. So you can sort of guarantee a certain behavior or support for a certain amount of time. And that also in doing that kind of calls out an expectation on the consumer side of how long this stuff will last put a a, a, an expiration date on the thing, or at least a a guaranteed until date. You know, I mean, in the traditional sort of hardware appliance world, you know, we we call that a warranty, right? This thing shouldn't break in X amount of time. After that, you're kind of on your own. I don't know exactly how, especially with new product categories, we can sort of do that, but I, I do think that there's an obligation for manufacturers to participate in this kind of literacy and, and shift and and mindset. And and not only what happens when the service, you know, sort of winds down or goes to end of life, but what's the expectation of if the service shuts down, you know, does the thing still work? Or, or even if just the network is down today, or you misplace your phone, so you can't use that coffee maker app that, <laughs> that you were talking about, right? what What happens? I think that we sort of try to often sweep that stuff under the rug. I think it should be the reverse of being like, let's... It out into the open so that people have real expectations for how long this stuff will last.
2: Yeah, I think you make a really good point here, which is, you know, the warranty on a box today is really a physical workmanship warranty. Uh, you know, as a manufacturer, that's our promise to you. I believe our on most of our stuff it's a year or two years. It's like, okay, there is not a manufacturing issue with the f- basic functioning of this physical device. What you bring up, I think, is an interesting argument for almost a whole new type of warranty, which is this is how long your expectation should be for this device to be supported. And so whether that's the the firmware updates, the cloud services, things like that, I think there's an interesting argument or industry standard or to be made there of like this is what the expectations are for those types of new things
1: you see the operating systems try to do this at, particularly with you know windows or or linux with kind of their bigger enterprise clients of this will be supported for this amount of time and really sort of trying to give a, a horizon to it and something that hasn't just really come to kind of the consumer level as much
0: but but of course people are still running Windows XP, right? I mean, so that that's the other thing is that there's a difference between supported and functioning. And so while I agree with you completely, Adam, I think we also need to be clear. And in this case, I mean, the companies need to be clear about what they mean by supported. What does it mean that it won't be supported after a certain date where it may not be supported? after a certain date. Does that mean that it won't work? Or does that mean that it won't get any better? Or does that mean that that's its half-life? That's when it may start to lose functionality over time. And there's no easy answer to that. It's going to be different product by product, company by company
1: yeah one thing that I'll mention along those lines that I do feel pretty strongly about is that so long as the company is in action, I do think that there is some obligation to keep their customers safe, even from their legacy products. And so I think that particularly around doing everything that that companies can to maintain security updates in particular, and this what is emerging as a very vulnerable space for people's home networks is I think, a really Important bit to guarantee for as long as as possible.
0: Absolutely, and you know you see companies continue to do that even when they say they're not going to. Microsoft, for example, at the beginning of January or mid January rather, had its end of support day for Windows Seven. Okay, Windows Seven. Half of the world is still using Windows Seven, but that was the end of life day for Windows Seven. A week later they released a patch for security purposes. So I think companies recognize that they have some obligation to not put their customers at risk if, in fact, they make products that are so good that people keep using them. So I I guess one of the things that I was really kind of curious about is on the company side. Like, what, what can companies do other than educate? What can they do to make this easier and i'm going to mention some things that i think we might have talked about even in our end of year show that we did with the other tech fm guys one of the things that i talk with product companies about when i'm working with them is planning for end of life it's kind of like creating the i don't know the like the the will or the prenup for your device right like what's going to happen if you're no longer here, or if you're no longer capable of supporting this thing. How will consumers move forward with this device? Will they be able to? And just to think about those things up front. And some companies have done some some pretty clever things around this. Like I mentioned one company previously that had established a trust to ensure that their services would continue to operate. And that in the event of anything happening to them or their ability to maintain it, that a third party would continue to maintain the services going forward. And that that this was something that they continued to invest in over time, so that that would be funded for an extended period of time beyond perhaps their own viability, which I thought was incredibly insightful and responsible.
1: That's really cool. I mean, and that's, you know, I think what you're saying about sort of cooking those decisions into the initial planning, is really kind of a set of, of really saying, we have these values as a company, and we're going to embed them in our product. Uh, and I think that's a great example of that, of, of making that something that's part of our business plan is just uh, that longevity is the thing that we want to guarantee.
0: Right. And that could obviously depend on the type of device with some devices or some high ticket investments that may be more important than something that costs $40, right? But but that's that's something to think about. Another thing, and this is something that Stacey Higginbotham has talked about a lot on the IoT podcast, is this idea of modular design that would allow for component replacement over time. Like, is it possible that the smart device that you made could be, you know, just as good and powerful as it was when you first released it? If you could swap out that 29 inch screen with an updated version of that, if it were designed in a way that allowed for that. This is really, really rare because nowadays you're reducing weight, you're reducing components, you're reducing cost, and Anything that's going to be modular is going to be bigger, heavier, and more expensive
2: yeah i my uh manufacturer hat on this this one is uh you know then don't complain when it costs twice as much because <laughs> or or is you know not pretty is twice as thick or you know things like that I mean I think that's the struggle here is that you know consumers are always pushing for cheaper faster, smaller, you know, all those things. And there's a reason why the uh, you know, a couple of years ago there was this prototype of a modular Android phone and uh that project never went anywhere. And Surprise. Yeah. And I think this was one of the reasons why is that it's not easy to to get there. And one of the struggles particularly in the smartphone space is in order to make affordable Devices, they can't necessarily be repairable, upgradable, things like that. Oh, you want it to be not two inches thick and cost twice as much, and all those things. You want it to be waterproof? Oh, it can't be serviceable. So, those are trade offs that companies are having to constantly make. And all those other pressures of the market just don't equal those kinds of things.
0: And you're seeing this even in traditionally replaceable components too, like stereo systems in cars. I mean, for decades, literally, if you had a stereo in your car, it was very likely in a standard one or two DIN containment space that could be swapped out with some third-party product that you added to give new life to your stereo system in your car 10 years later. Most cars, that's like a foreign thing that does. they they don't use that anymore
2: yeah i mean i think it's just kind of the way things are going you know more and more things are more integrated more custom and things like that so you know we're we're seeing some some changes to that but it's a tough tough place for for manufacturers to kind of go this route
1: I suppose there's also the the software and services piece of this that is equally fraught and challenging. But, you know, I think there's an interesting thing to explore is at the design phase of these things is how might we make it so that. You could swap out an underlying service in some way, you know, that that when the thing goes to the end of life, is there is there a follow on market to supply software support or fixes to old software or supply that service so that I don't know, fans of these old versions of Sonos can sort of like still draw software from some sort of trusted source that is complex. But, you know, in the same way that we're sort of talking about providing, you know, I don't know, component parts that could have some aftermarket service, you know, is there sort of component software that we could start to evolve or or just beginning to develop sort of a, a shared or common API among kind of certain common uh sort of software services but i guess what i'm sort of getting at is like you know even now you can still find the occasional typewriter repair shop to you know to to fix your your old electric typewriter even
2: though the manufacturer is long gone or no longer supports that stuff how, how do we think about that for these kinds of products I think for our stuff, I mean, one of the one of the things we've had going for us is, is HomeKit. You know, HomeKit supporting that protocol from a smart home perspective, that will keep on working so long as Apple supports it. I like Apple's chances at supporting it long after, you know, others. And so that's been a good fallback. If, you know, if we disappeared tomorrow, our products, at least the people that used it in a HomeKit context would be able to continue using it. And hopefully some of these newer initiatives like connected home over IP will have these kinds of things mindful to them such that there will be that fallback that doesn't require cloud servers, you know, to operate the products if a company were to go away. Yeah.
0: What, Josh, what you're talking about almost sounds like open open source services, right? Like if, if, if you were to take the services and open source them and make them available for to, to be operated elsewhere or or supported by other services. And HomeKit is a really good net for that. And it's funny that you mentioned that as an example, Adam, because what what you have with HomeKit is you you're, you don't have to necessarily provide the services for that. You're depending on Apple to do it for you. And in fact, when Best Buy discontinued their Insignia smart devices – It was the HomeKit devices that were still functional. Right. So, interesting. Yeah, that was their saving grace. Yeah. Josh, I wanted to get to something, because I really think this is the heart of it. I'm always big into thinking about this stuff up front, and... I love your your agency's tagline if you will and I don't know if you call it that but you know you mentioned this concept earlier of design for what's next and I I really strongly believe that that's what companies need to be doing they need to think from the beginning about what's next whether that is can this device operate without services well If you bought a Jules Suvide wand, the answer is no, because it has no buttons on it, no controls whatsoever. You have to use your app to use it. That's the most ridiculous (laughs) thing I've ever heard of in my life. Other products have made that same mistake. This is kind of like the bane of my user experience existence when I see industrial design with no physical controls.
1: Right. Right. I understand why the designers do it because it's like, let's just make the interface as invisible as possible. And it's like, you know, and you can have like just this amazing sleek object as a result without any of these sort of fussy controls. Um, <clears throat> but there is this thing of actually, it means that taking a step backward that sort of, you don't want to by imposing your sort of new fancy invisible interface, you don't want to make the thing kind of less Usable, or, or I don't know that thing of like, you know, talking about Sono speakers again, you know, thank God they've got that little volume control button right on it because it takes me too long to fumble with my phone to kind of get to the thing if I need to turn the volume down. It's like, what, what are the core features that you still need to make available and just, yeah, put a physical switch on the thing, please?
0: <laughs> well, and Adam, you guys did that from gen one of your smart switches you had physical buttons to be able to turn things on and off. You don't want people to have to rely on an app to do that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've always believed in that and having at least some sort of physical way to control the device. I mean, I think it causes issues if, if you don't have a manual way of doing it. You know, even in a perfectly functioning product, you know, networks go down, you can't find your phone, whatever. There, there always needs to be a physical way to do something.
0: Yeah. So, I I mean, I I truly believe that in the design phase, you, you need to be thinking about how you're using connectivity, how you're using services, and are the core value features of a product dependent upon those services? Because if they are, that's risky territory,
1: I do think that there's sort of some, you know, I've mentioned it a few times that I think that, that one of the things that we need to do as, as product makers is to really try to contribute to this literacy and understanding of this new mental model of, on the one hand, you have the physical device and what it is capable of without any of its sort of smart enabling features. And you have this, this, those services. One of the things that, in a way, you know, obviously sort of subscription business models are 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 the big thing of the last few years for sort of obvious reasons from the business point of view. It's like, oh, here's sustainable, repeating kind of revenue for better and for worse for customers, I would say. But I think one of the things that I like about, for example, Peloton is it's like, here's what it's going to cost for the hardware. You've got this bike. It's going to be a bike no matter what happens next. And here's the services that that sort of give it its special sauce. And that's actually a separate fee. I mean, there's sort of this really distinct thing that emphasizes the mental model for the customers of, oh, wait a second, I've got the hardware. And I've bought that. And now I'm buying this other enabling service that I can continue to subscribe to or not. But it's a very sort of distinct thing of like, here's the hardware, here's the software. They are two things, not a single thing. Because I think right now there's just this, this notion that, oh, I'm buying a smart bike or a smart speaker, but it will not always be smart is kind of what we're talking about here how do you really reinforce that idea in the presentation and the pricing and sort of every aspect of how you present that, that these things can be used as a single experience, but ultimately the smart part and the hardware part are, are, are distinct.
2: Yeah. Right. I I think Peloton was a great example and theirs was, you know, the monitor kind of TV side of the first gen um, wasn't going to be supported with some new features. So, those people were still going to have a working device and it was still going to do what it did the day they bought it, but it wasn't going to get new fancy things in the future. And I think they're probably a good, people still kind of freaked out, but they, they handled it a little bit better. They offered people a discount and they're an example where the hardware was somewhat upgradable. You could just upgrade the monitor part of the bike without replacing the whole bike. I think that's an example where if people would have had to replace the whole bike, they probably would have really lost it, a la what we're seeing in in Sonos land. So I think they're one that that kind of did this in a in a pretty good way. But people still got mad. So you know, I don't know what manufacturers can fully do to, to handle this properly, or, or there's going to be an expectation that a certain percentage of your user base when you go down this path is just going to get ticked and you know you're just gonna have to deal with it I think the services
0: model is really tricky and you have to help customers understand that they're getting value for the services that you're offering because you know I I am still among the people who like refuses to spend monthly on the Adobe suite of products or refuses to you know, buy some random subscription service to be able to integrate a smart product with something else when other companies don't require that. So, that appetite for a subscription is really tricky. Now, on the other hand, I've been a TiVo user for, well, decades, literally. So, I don't know where that line is.
1: It is really tricky. It is, you know, and, and I think that we're going to have to, because I think that many of us are already getting subscription fatigue, right? I mean, just... Exactly. You know, Lord, just the just the television market right now, right? It's like, how many streaming subscriptions do you need just to watch your kind of set of favorite shows? I, I, you know, I, I do think all, all this often kind of gets to also sort of this tension that we've sort of been talking about of, of hardware products turning into something different than what they were before. And, you know, that now if your hardware now relies on software or external services, that means you are not in complete control of it. And you share that control with the manufacturer in ways that we haven't in the analog days. I think one of my favorite examples of that is is the John Deere tractor, which for folks who don't follow this kind of stuff might be surprised that these things are loaded with high-tech software at this point, to the point, right, where John Deere sort of treats their tractors like software, that you don't actually own your tractor, you have a license to it, and, you know, technically are not even allowed to repair it. And so this is, you know, I think maybe an extreme example, but something that we're getting to where, you know, the fact that this is now connected to an online service, the fact that it has software in it where the features or operation of the thing can change from day to day for better and for worse, like I said, is is just it's a new kind of thing that, you know, Adam, you're right, it's going to make people angry sometimes because it's going to be choices that they are not in control of and that they might not have otherwise made.
0: So I think we were accurate in predicting that we weren't going to solve this problem. There is some good news. There there are some moves that are happening. I have seen things like again Stacy and Kevin were talking about this on the IOT podcast that Signify has announced a commitment to support new Philips Hue devices for a specific number of years after they're released. The EU is currently considering legislation that would require companies to do a whole bunch of things that are security related, but among them specifically identify the expiration of security updates for those connected devices. And I think that we're going to see more and more stuff like this as this shakes out. I worry a little bit about legislation because... Particularly in the U.S., we don't have a good track record of legislating technology, but I think we're going to need to see where this goes over the next couple of years.
1: Yeah. I think that's right. You know, obviously, the EU has a a, a real sort of... um... They um, are adventurous in their uh, regulation in terms of privacy, in terms of sort of all kinds of kind of putting trying to put the consumer in the front seat in a way that is very different than in North America. Um, And, you know,
2: if nothing else, I think the rest of the world can look at that experiment and, and learn from it and see what happens. Yeah, I think we're just scratching the surface here on on kind of all all fronts of this. And so, you know, I think this is the start of this conversation and hopefully we'll hear you know more voices from consumers, from companies, from you know other other participants in this, and uh, you know come to a place where where we can all agree, or or at least agree more, and uh, avoid these kinds of situations going forward.
0: Yeah, and you know here's where I'm going to put my shameless plug in for a panel that I facilitated at the Smart Kitchen Summit about two years ago now, called "Don't Brick My Fridge" and. I had someone from Kenmore and a couple of people from infrastructure services companies where we, we tackled this from a business perspective. Like what, what are companies doing now to try and address this issue and how are they balancing like the benefits of connectivity with the, the business challenges of maintaining that? So I'll have a link in our show notes so that you can take a look at that. This has been a lot of fun. Before we get out of here, we usually end with a question from a listener. And we have a listener question from Twitter, from PTIFan23. And he asks, or he says, rather, I'm very excited and optimistic about the new Connected Home over IP project. Will it be the answer to our smart home prayers and actually materialize? Or is it just smoke and mirrors? Josh?
1: Oh, man. You know, I I, I guess I would say I'm sort of in the same boat. I've, I'm uh, excited and optimistic. Uh, obviously, like a lot of this stuff, we need kind of just sort of better standards and agreed upon standards for this stuff. And it's just like we've been in this messy phase for a long time. So I am optimistic, but also not necessarily
2: great about uh, sort of picking the winners before they come out. Adam? I'm similarly optimistic. I, you know, was a little bit surprised to see this announcement and um and I'm encouraged by it, but I think we're still a, a long way from seeing the results of it. So I would tell this this listener and everyone else, you know, I wouldn't count your chickens before they hatch anytime soon and, you know, stick stick with the current ecosystems that are out there today and <laughs> you know kind of plan like this will never happen and and hope that you know it does play out well but you know i'm not changing kind of where where we're at today or or any of the stuff i'm buying at home and just going to kind of follow along and keep up with this but we want to dig into this a lot more in a future episode and um plan on on going in more on this topic so a lot more to come from from richard and i on this how about you richard
0: I'm optimistic. I think we need to see what happens, though. This is so, so, so early. I mean, there isn't a standard yet. There isn't a draft standard. All this is so far is these companies getting together, realizing that they need to do something. And that in and of itself is a good thing.
2: Yep, absolutely. So I guess... In closing here, Josh, thanks for joining us today. Can you tell everybody where a little bit about where they can find you on the internet?
1: Sure. Yeah, you can um, find um, Big Medium at bigmedium.com, uh, where you can find a lot of writings and talks about stuff like this, as well as some of the projects that we've been working on. And you can find me on Twitter at Big Medium Josh.
0: Very cool. This has been so much fun. I'm so glad you were able to join us. You guys are a real treat. This has been really
1: a lot of fun. Appreciate it.
2: Adam, where do people find you? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Adam Justice and everything that my company's up to at ConnectSense.com. How about you, Richard? You can find
0: me at Richard Gunther and you can find my writings over at the Digital Media Zone where you also find my other show, Home On. And speaking of which... The Smart Home Show is part of technology.fm, and that's a collection of tech-focused podcasts that includes Home Tech, The Food Tech Show, and Home On. And if you want our show notes, if you want details about each episode, you can find them out at smarthome.fm. And you can find our show in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or everywhere else you find podcasts. And do us a favor. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating or a review and tell a friend about the
2: show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in. And thanks again, Josh, for joining us. Thank you.